It's great to see everybody here this morning. Um, thank you, Lawrence, for adjusting that. I'm glad you're here <laughs> right now. <laughs> it is great to see everybody. We've had some, right, some days it's easy to make it here in church. Some days are not. That was us the last 48 hours. We've had some really sick horses, and then we're going to actually be traveling to Europe later. And we found out last night when we went to check in that all our health papers were not in order. So it's nice to be here and just focus on the Lord and worship with all of you. Um, for those of you I don't know, my name's Deirdre Chance. I'm part of the ministry team here. Um, thanks to the elders, I get to come up periodically and preach to you. If you're new or visiting, we've been going through the Pentateuch. We've been looking at Leviticus over the summer. I think we're about the fifth week into Leviticus. Um, last weekend, I came across an article that was in the New York Times. It's uh, part of their online subscription, if anybody gets that. Um, and it was on chosen family. So it came out over the 4th of July weekend. It was pointing out just the people that we traditionally spend time with over the holidays, right? Like extended family, parents, siblings, more people maybe were getting reunited with their pandemic pod. But then this article was pointing out something they called chosen families those families that are created outside the structures of the nuclear family are often in place of the nuclear family. And they were highlighting how some members of the LBGTQ plus community have formed these chosen families in place of their nuclear families. They gave a couple examples, um, a community in Asheville of 10 to 20 lesbians and kind of highlighted some of their activities. There's another group in California um, of aging gay men and how they try to care for each other. As I was reading this article, the impact on me was both sad and good. It was sad to me because, right, when I read articles like that where people are a sort of social outcast, I think... Like, where is the church? Where is the church there to minister to them and to show them the community of God? And maybe, you know, the article didn't talk about it. Maybe there are some, but obviously not significantly enough to make it into the article. Um, but then another part of me, it was good because it just demonstrated to me how we all need community, right? Like, there's no us and them when it comes to us as humans and our need for community. And the article really supports that all of us find community attractive. We're drawn to community. We want community. Community is something that God has put in all of us. The article also reminded me of Rosaria Butterfield. So I'm sure some of you, if you were around in 2019 when we did that summer series on hospitality, she'll sound familiar to you. She was the author of the book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Um, if you're not familiar with Butterfield, she was a professor at Syracuse University and a leader in the LGBTQ plus community in the 90s and um, a proponent for um, LGBTQ civil rights initiatives. She became acquainted with a Christian pastor who invited her over for dinner. Originally, she agreed to go do dinner to do research on the religious right and to uh, understand and debate Christian efforts that are against LGBTQ plus initiatives. And she reluctantly agreed, again, because she wanted to do research, and she was expectant 
for this dinner to have debate and shame and attacks, but instead, she encountered authentic Christianity, just a true faith-based loving interactions. Eventually, she became a believer, and she's no longer part of the LGBTQ plus community. But because of her background and her experiences, she practices what she calls radical ordinary hospitality to share the gospel in this increasingly post-Christian society. And she, pretty shooting straight, <laughs> encourages other Christians to do the same. If you've read her book, you know what I mean. <laughs> she encourages Christians um, to love neighbors who are like her, like ourselves, but also to encourage Christians to love people in our spheres who aren't like us, who maybe we would even kind of consider enemies in a sense, maybe along political lines or social lines. Butterfield points out in her book that when Jesus walked this earth, he wasn't afraid to touch hurting people. She defines radically ordinary hospitality as this, using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors the family of God. It brings glory to God, it serves others, it lives out the gospel in word and deed. She says if you are prohibited from using your living space in this way, it's the same if you support and participate with other households in your church who are doing this. She says, radically ordinary Christian hospitality must be rooted and steeped in grace, church community, prayer and fasting, repentance, scripture, and worshipful praise. She says, you must, be, you must prepare spiritually because it is indeed spiritual warfare. In short, right, she's pointing out that the gospel is best preached when it's lived out among people. Um, and if you remember back in 2019, if you were here, I was kind of re-looking at some of the topics we covered in, in the hospitality series in 2019, right? Because it's not like, oh, we did a sermon, we're done. <laughs> We've arrived. <laughs> like, it's good. It was challenging to me to re-look at just the topics. So we looked at things like loving the stranger and the enemy, clarifying your life and household purposes, resources for hospitality, prayer, time, and money, Developing sincere friendships, right? We're not just using people to share, them the, to share the gospel. We're loving them and developing sincere friendships and intentionally meeting needs. And we covered just different challenges for men, for women, for households with young children. And then, of course, COVID hit. <laughs> and if anything took a dive, uh, for sure, hospitality did. So here we are today, looking again at laws and legal codes on hospitality. The laws uh, that Meredith read, right, they were laws how to guide a society, how to guide a whole nation, the Israeli nation, on how to regard one's personal resources to not only provide for yourself, but to be able to provide for your household, for the society to be able to provide for workers, for the foreigners, for poor, for those under difficult conditions within their nation. You know, and again, this is like the fifth week that we've been covering laws and legal codes. And as we've working more and more into these laws, I think it's just hit, impacted me more deeply how rich 
these laws are. I think the first week when Lawrence um, first introduced the series and laws and legal codes, he pointed out one purpose of the laws and legal codes is that it's a way for God's people to be distinct and set apart, right? That's one definition for holy, to be set apart and different. So one purpose of the laws is to make God's people set apart and different, to show and demonstrate that Yahweh is different than any other God. And then we looked at another purpose of the laws being as a way to deal with legitimate guilt and sin. And I think that came up in the Q&A last week too, but specifically when we looked at sexual sins, right? That's a way to deal with legitimate guilt and sin. Another purpose of the legal codes is it's a way to guide good and right behavior to show the people this is what loving others and loving God, I should put that the other way, loving God and loving others looks like. And I, right, if we could kind of make a broad sweeping generalization of all those purposes of the law, if we put them all together, it's to grow in the awe and fear of the Lord. It's a way to express worship to God, to express faith and dependence on God. And like we've kind of been pointing out and reminding all along, right, the laws were never to make one righteous. Never a way to be justified. However, as God's people, especially after the exile, right, they, be, they become exiled, they realize that they're exiled in large part because they haven't been faithfully obeying these laws. And so they sort of do this pendulum shift and they legalistically start to follow these laws because they realized we got exiled because, you know, we weren't paying any attention to God. We weren't living by faith, so then they overdo it. And they look at the law as a way to be justified. And for sure, by the time we right, open up the Gospels, first century Palestine, we see many of the Pharisees and teachers and lawyers with that almost idolatrous, in fact, I would say idolatrous worship of the law. And I think one of the places we see this most clearly um, is in Mark 2. I know it's in Matthew 2, but it's that account where we see Jesus and his disciples walking through the field on a Sabbath, and so they pluck some heads of grain and they're eating it, and the Pharisees accuse Jesus and his disciples of working on the Sabbath. And Jesus says in Mark 2:27, he says, man was not created for the law, for the legal codes. The law was created for man. Right? Like sometimes, I think all of us as humans, we get this idea somehow like the laws are just like this, these absolute universals that have always existed before and will continue to always exist. And Jesus is saying that's not true. Man was created first. Man, humans were created in the image of God to image God and to bring him glory. But when original sin and continual sin caused all that to unravel, then the law was created. But the law, man wasn't created for the law. The law was created for humans. So the laws were never a way to be righteous or in right standing with God. It's always been based on faith. But the law was a way to set God's people apart, to make them distinct, to be a legitimate way to deal with guilt and sin, to lead God's people to good behavior, to overall right lead us in worship, in the awe and fear of the Lord. 
And I think corollary to all these two, um, like those are, seem like more the key purposes, but corollary to that, the laws also show us God's character, which I think Amy Sleeper pointed out to us last week. It's a good point. And when we look at these laws this week, I think these laws really highlight that as well. Like we see God's character in these laws. We see God's care for the sojourner. We see God's care for the alien, the stranger, the foreigner, the one right who's different culturally, often with less rights than that majority reference group. And in addition to God's care, we also see God's compassion. There's another set of um, legal codes at the end of Exodus, but I was trying to keep it more in Leviticus, but right, a lot of these laws repeat. So in, at the end of Exodus 22, there's um, a group of laws, and it states, like, not, again, not to wrong or oppress a foreigner, but then it goes on to list more vulnerable people groups not to wrong, like widows and orphans and the poor. And then after God kind of goes through the list of people to be sure not to wrong or oppress, he concludes by saying that he will hear the cries of the vulnerable, for he is compassionate. Right? We see God's compassion in these laws. We also see God's love and care for all the nations. These laws demonstrate God's desire to bless people groups of all nations. Right? God chose Israel to be unique and to be blessed, but they were to be blessed in order to be a blessing to all the other people's group. God heart was still to bless all peoples, or people from all people groups. And these laws, as we, as, again, as Meredith read them today, they appeal to the Israelites to care for others because the Israelites were at one time in the same spot, which shows us, communicates to us, God's desire for his people to be humble to be merciful, to be sympathetic. And then the last verse that was read today builds on all of this. God is pointing out that we all are just temporary sojourners in this world, right? Like, this world isn't ours. <laughs> it's God's. He's the Lord. He's the master of this world and creation. We aren't. We are just temporary sojourners. This current world is not our forever home. We were meant for another world, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with this quote of C.S. Lewis where he says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. This is not our forever home. We are just temporary sojourners living in God's creation. And the core of the laws, as we read them today, demonstrates the heart of God. What was of central concern to him? What God was really concerned about was his people's heart. He's most concerned about our hearts, what we love. You know, even in the midst of the era when the bulk of the law was guiding God's people before Christ came, even in the midst of that, 
God is showing his desire for his people to care for the weak and be vulnerable. That's why, like, with the prophet Hosea, before Christ came, God says, I desire mercy and steadfast love, not all these sacrifices. Psalms 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you do not despise. The focus of these laws, the focus of this sermon isn't just about caring for immigrants and foreigners, though that's good. It's not just about caring for the poor, though that's good. It's not just about personal hospitality. It's about our hearts being kind and generous and loving rather than miserly and selfish and dishonest. And then as our hearts are loving, right, we will overflow into these things. Uh, we looked at some of these same verses last week intentionally when we were focusing on business and work. And again, in the Q&A, it came up about hospitality, which shows like we can already see, right, the interconnectedness of these laws. It's not just about doing these things. It's about where does the, your motivations and desires and wishes come from? Our hearts, right? It's about our hearts. Sometimes, I don't know, I think we do live under this idea like, oh, I'm in my business drawer right now, and I can just pull that out, and I can be selfish and miserly in that, but then when I get home and I'm doing things in my personal private life, well, there I'll be generous, but eventually that breaks down, right? Like, we make choices out of our hearts. If our hearts are selfish and miserly in our business, like, eventually it's going to extend into other areas, too. So the focus of these laws is really our hearts and to grow in the awe and fear of God so that our hearts love what God loves, which is compassion and mercy and generosity to all humans, but especially to the vulnerable and at risk. So what are the obstacles? What are the barriers that prevent us from living like these principles are guiding us to? I think the number one answer, like if we were at Family Feud, the number one answer would have to be busyness, right? You ask anybody how they're doing, it's busy. I'm busy. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. You've got kids. You don't have kids. It's before you have kids. It's after you have kids. I still feel busy, like, right? We're always busy. And then leading into that, I would say, is personal comforts. Um, back in the late 70s, if you're two well-known sociologists, if you're up on your sociologists, um, Jean-Francois Lyotard and Frederick Jameson, they were the first to really put out in the late 70s this idea that our society is no longer a Christian, well, they wouldn't have said Christian, but no longer a modern society, that we've really moved into postmodernism. And they really weren't trying to advocate it, they were just diagnosing it. They said, the key signs of our era, and this was right late 70s, so into the 80s, of our society being a postmodern state is that we're a consumer society, we're a media society, and we're post-industrial society. And then Butterfield, in her book, again, Gospel Comes with a Health Key, sort of builds on that and exhorts the church by saying, we are not victims, we, the church, are not victims of this post-Christian world. We are co-conspirators. We embrace modernism's perks when they serve our ambitions, and then we despise it when it crosses our precious lines of moralism. 
She says, our cold hearts fail to love the stranger because our lives are filled with self-focused ambitions to seek privilege, time, money, and so too often we stand guilty in the face of God for withholding love and Christian witness to widows, orphans, prisoners, and refugees. I think another obstacle and barrier from the church being able to practice hospitality is our church culture is built in an age where members' time is filled running big programs so that we don't have time and capacity and skill and experience to practice hospitality. Um, Another sociologist, Carl Truman of Princeton University, observes that hospitality as a regular rhythm of the church's daily life like true friendship is at a premium. And he says it's because our towns, it's partly because our towns have been disemboweled by shopping plazas and malls and our lives are filled with ceaseless activities. I would submit that we don't know how to be united as couples and households in order to have the skill, the wisdom, the experience to do hospitality. We don't know how to be united as communities, as local missional communities like our house churches. We just lack that skill, that wisdom, that experience to do hospitality well. I think we don't know well how to live skillfully with our resources. I I don't think that in our culture, Hospitality just happens very often. It takes intentionality and skill and wisdom and prayer. Maybe it never happens in any culture very well. Because Ephesians 5.15 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Right? It takes wisdom. It takes intentionality. It takes prayer. It takes a community. And I think another big barrier to we as a church being able to practice hospitality is unhealthiness. There will be periods in our lives where we need to put all our time and effort into getting healthy. If you're overcoming a substance use disorder, if you're overgoing significant trauma, like you need to put your time into getting healthy before you think about serving others. But I think there's other times where we have these periods of unhealthiness, maybe um, attacks from the enemy, you know, just struggles within ourselves, living in a fallen world. And I think those times we may need to just lean on God more and keep practicing hospitality. I think we may minister to people more as we are just vulnerable and honest in our mess and inviting people into our lives and trusting God and being okay with them seeing we're not perfect. You know, and maybe those are times, like Butterfield points out, maybe those are times that we join with others more to do hospitality. Maybe it's not really unhealthiness that is such an obstacle, but a fear that we've got to be perfect in order to do hospitality. 
when we remember the God who sought us, the God who took us in, the God who made us family and adopted us into his household and seated us at his banqueting table, we remember the loving heart of God and his gospel and his good news for all people. Right? It's not about white-knuckling it and trying to well up within us some desire. It's about remembering what God has done for us, how generous he's been to us and extending that same generosity to others. It's remembering like Ephesians 2 tells us to, 2 tells us to, that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, remembering that at one time you were separate from Christ, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Like, remember that time? But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. We're members of his family. That's why Paul goes on in Ephesians 3 to say that God who created all things has done this so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be revealed even to the heavenly realms. I often joke, I've probably said it up here before, like, I think if I were in God's position, I would be like, no, I'm not picking the church to be the chosen way to reveal that. I think I'll send Jesus back, like, maybe once a week when things are bad. But <laughs> that is not God's choice. His choice is to choose us to, be, to reveal the manifold wisdom of God. So we get presented, right, with these biblical principles on hospitality. And there's a variety of applications that we could make. And I think summer is a great season to, to be exposed, to be reminded of these principles on hospitality and pray about it. And we can make a range of applications. We can make radical applications. We can make moderate applications. We can make uh, lighter applications. And, I, and it would be based on um, valid variables, right? We're not all in the same seasons of life. We don't all have the same resources. We don't all have the same capacity. There should be variety in how we apply the gospel. I would say Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, has more radical applications. Like if you pick up her book, she has recipes um, for how to just beans and rice recipes to have use your resources for more meals. Um, she talks about using the Psalter at the family dinner table. We don't all have to apply, make the same applications as her. In fact, I would be concerned if we're all like right, being carbon copies of Rosaria Butterfield. But you may pick up her book and be like, that is a really good idea. I can do that. Like she uses the Nextdoor app, and that's the only social media app she uses. That may be a great fit for you. It may not. But we should all be challenged by the way she is intentional to make hospitality central to her family's life and routines. We don't need to, though, be carbon copies of one another. Um, I think a great practice is just to ask people who know you. Ask people in your family, in your household, in your house church. Like, how do you think I'm doing with hospitality and showing God's heart to those around me? Um, another book we had gone through um, 
when we did the hospitality series was Tim Keller's book, Center Church. I would say his suggestions are more moderate applications. He has some like general suggestions. He says like, find ways to get to know others in your building or neighborhood, maybe through a common laundry area or resident meetings. He says, keep the same schedule, like go for a walk the same time every day, go to the grocery store, the coffee shop, haircuts the same time every day. Serve in your neighborhood, pick up litter, or find ways to get connected to people like a community board. Be intentional to see the needs of your neighbors and to figure out how to meet them, especially elderly neighbors is his suggestion. Um, and he says to be hospitable to neighbors when and where appropriate, invite them over for a meal or a movie to go to a restaurant together. And then he has, uh, actually he has like two pages, I'm just gonna pick two of the examples, but he has like, two pages of just examples, living examples of people in his church, what he calls sharing the gospel. Like it doesn't just have to be right, leading people through a four-step process and <laughs> having them pray the salvation prayer. Like he has a, a richness shown and he has a couple examples there. One, he talks about a young lawyer in his church and how this young lawyer knows other lawyers, same profession in the church, but they work at different firms, and he decides to have a Super Bowl party. So he invites a lot of his colleagues, he invites his friends from church, some who are in the same profession are also lawyers. Um, his colleagues hit it off with a lot of friends from church, and three months later, uh, he sees one of his business colleagues come in with a friend he had introduced him from church. Another example Tim Keller gives is about a young mom and two other Christian friends, moms who have young kids, and they decide to start a mom's group and invite non-Christian friends. They do it for about a year. They have about the same number of believers and non-believers. They're just having organic, natural conversations, everything ranging from spiritual to social to marriage to personal issues. And as time goes on, several of the non-believers decide to come to the church to pursue faith for themselves. And then finally, I just wanted to, um, to make one last point on hospitality, that hospitality is often richer as we do it as a community, right? Like if one person just meets me, they don't meet the church, they just meet an individual. It, the church shows the richness of the gospel. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, he has a chapter where he really points that out and he gives some principles that are important for us to do to have strong communities so that we can have strong, vibrant, gospel-based hospitality. He points out some general callings and gifts and some um, more individual ones and how they, again, strengthen the community and hospitality. So like in our communities, and this is something we talk a lot about in our house churches, he encourages communities to be speaking the truth in love to one another which right, also implies people are gonna be receiving the truth spoken to them in love, so it's a two-way street. But he talks about how that's important for community to be strong, to do hospitality. He also says it's important to have the ministry of holding one's tongue in community, right? That kind of balances each other out. And then he um, highlights the ministry of meekness and, of, and humility. Right, being a community that seeks not only our own interests, but also the interests of others, especially the interests of our neighbors. And he even presses it further and says, to seek the honor of your neighbor. As we 
really pursue that as communities. It strengthens our hospitality efforts. And then he highlights a couple of unique callings, right? Not everybody, some people are going to be stronger in some giftings and thus ministries, organic ministries, not like a formal ministry, but the ministry of listening, right? Some people are more gifted in that. The ministry of being compassionate and bearing one another's burdens. Some people will be stronger in that. The, the ministry of helping and serving. Some people are stronger in that and really strengthen the community. The ministry of proclaiming the word, both you know, right, in teaching and group settings, as well as just person-to-person in conversation. And finally, there needs to be the ministry of authority and protection for a community as well, so that we're strong and safe and can do hospitality. So, you know, as I, as I read these verses, as I think through what we've talked about before in the past of hospitality for us as a church and relook at these afresh, it's really my prayer that we as a church can reflect Christ and extend his gospel to others through our hospitality. So let me pray for that end. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word um, that sharpens us, um, that encourages us, that strengthens us. We ask that your spirit would strengthen us to apply it deeply. We thank you, Lord, that you demonstrate the beauty and depth of hospitality through your son, Jesus Christ, and how you have brought us to your table and made us family. Lord, give us skill and wisdom in how to do this in practicals and in specifics in our lives. And I just pray all these things through our advocate, Jesus Christ. Amen.